Welcome to Tequila Talks, the podcast that provides a comprehensive understanding of the world of finance and technology today. This show is brought to you by Nova Payment, a mission-critical financial and payments infrastructure provider. I'm Alex Johnson, and I'll be hosting the first episodes, where I'll be talking to industry leaders and delving into the business models of some of the most successful fintechs operating right now across the Americas. And I'm Nicole Kasperson, and I'll hear the human stories and insights behind the headlines that most people miss. Let's do this. Who owns the customer in a basset? Who is the customer? For a long time, I was telling bankers, Bass is nothing more than a distribution channel thing. It's about getting your products out to a broader set of people. Right. And that's true. But it misses the point that those aren't your customers. They're somebody else's customers. Your customer is the client, the fintech, or the brand that's providing that. If you're helping them grow their business by providing the financial services you provide, don't you think that positions you better to be the bank to that client? My guest today is the author of the FinTech Snark Tank on Forbes, the chief research officer at Cornerstone Advisors, my former boss, and uh, my good friend, Ron Shevlin. Ron, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Alex. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was thinking um, for as long as we've known each other, and it's been a while now, I think this might actually be the first podcast we've ever done together. Is that possible? Uh, I think it is. Yeah. (laughs) Listen, when I met you, I don't think there were podcasts, to tell you the truth, back then. But uh, that's a different story. Well, and and I would have been a horrible either uh, moderator or guest on such a podcast when we met because I didn't know anything about anything at the time. But um, hopefully we can do a little better this time. I wanted to have you on because one of the topics that we're exploring is banking as a service. Obviously, uh, a topic that everyone in the industry spends a lot of time thinking about. Uh, I know you and I have both written a lot about it. You have done some very specific research on it. And so I wanted to talk about banking as a service from a couple of different angles. And um, one construct I like when thinking about banking as a service is sort of supply and demand, because really it's kind of a two-sided market. And so I wanted to sort of think about it in those terms. And I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the supply side, so banks that are getting involved in banking as a service and supplying essentially their charter to uh, fintech companies or other non-banks that want to offer financial services products. And in the the survey that you guys do at Cornerstone every year, the What's Going On in Banking report, one of the questions that you had asked was uh, of the community uh, FIs that participate in that research which of them are currently doing banking as a service, uh, which ones are maybe considering doing banking as a service, and which ones have sort of ruled out banking as a service. And from what I saw, it looked like something like 7% of respondents said they were already providing BAS, 4% were in the process of developing a BAS strategy, and another 13% were considering the possibility of launching uh, banking as a service. There was then, of course, sort of a, a large group in the middle that um, were sort of uh, thinking about maybe thinking about it. And then I think roughly about 30% said that they had ruled it out. So I guess maybe starting here with these community FIs, uh, banks that are uh, largely today under $10 billion in assets that are kicking around, maybe getting into banking as a service. What did you think of those results? I know you uh, are very aware of the fact that sometimes in these surveys, 
people will be a little aspirational in how they answer questions or maybe a little bit too pessimistic about how they answer questions. So how do you interpret those results in terms of banks that are getting into banking as a service potentially? Alex, before I answer that question, and then not knowing where our listeners are coming from, from a definitional perspective, I was out at a conference recently where somebody made the comment that, well, you know, Bass is somewhat related to embedded banking and embedded finance. And I, my reaction was like, what do you mean? It's one in the same. So let's, let's just put some definitions on the table there. Please. Of course, arguable. But from my perspective, embedded finance or embedded banking is the delivery of financial services from licensed or chartered financial institutions by non-chartered companies, whether it's a fintech, it could be a brand, it could be anything uh, that's integrated into their products, apps, and processes. You know, co-branded credit card is not really embedded finance. Sure. It's because it's the bank's process. It's not integrated in. So what is banking as a service then? Banking as a service are the services that the bank provides to their customer or client, which is the fintech or the brand that enables them to provide those financial services. So there's no relatedness. It's it's right. It's it's the inside of the coin. It's not even one side of the coin or the other. Okay. <laughs> yep. That's the definitional side. Now let's go back to the data, because seven percent of banks and credit unions are not currently providing banking as a service services. It's seven percent of the sample that Cornerstone surveyed, and as I tried to take pains to talk about in the report is that I don't think the 300 or so respondents we had is representative of the total population of banks and credit unions. I think it's representative of of a subset of banks and credit unions who are more aggressive about their use of technology. Cornerstone's term is the troublemakers. I don't know that that's a great term or not, but there's probably about 1,500 banks and credit unions who are truly aggressive about using technology. And I believe that, you know, six or 7% of them are doing it because reality is, I think there's only about 150 or so banks and credit unions that are really in the bass space today. So those are the numbers. So we have like 7% of that uh, subset within the community banking space that are doing it. And then I think there was like um, 4% that were actively working on it and 13% that were like considering maybe getting into it. But like, I, I guess one of the things I'm curious about is of that, let's say 17% that are either working on it or working on a strategy to work on it, what are the considerations driving them? I mean, you talk to a lot of these community banking executives that are among those troublemakers. What's the sort of general thinking driving their interest or their strategy behind banking as a service? What do they see as the opportunity? Growth. Plain and simple, it, it's about growth. I think a lot of, com- when we talk community-based financial institutions, community is generally a geographic construct. Yeah. And there is a footprint that you play in. And increasingly, it's difficult to grow within a single geographic footprint or, or space because there are all these companies, fintechs, whatever you might be, digital banks, chipping away, who are more national in focus, who kind of chip away at the at the business. And then with the general trend towards consolidation in the industry, 
uh, these mid-sized institutions find themselves up against increasingly growing and larger institutions with huge. So there's just all this pressure that's constraining growth. And I think a lot of smart financial institutions are saying, wait, we, we, we can fight this trend and continue to find places to grow non-traditionally and Bass is that, that kind of, that avenue to do that. And of the kind of community banks that are, are in the space, I mean, one of the questions I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is just what is the competitive strategy that you have as a banking as a service provider, right? Because like in the early days when we're talking about just a few companies like Bank Corp that are doing banking as a service, literally you're just sort of like um, a sea lion in the locks, just grabbing a fish and taking a bite and then tossing the fish away. Like there's just so much more uh, demand than there is supply. But as supply has increased and a lot of um, community banks are now looking at banking as a service as a an opportunity for growth or a way to sort of get off of this M&A treadmill that they're sort of trapped on, that would seem to be an area where there's now a lot more competition. And so I I think one thing I, I am concerned about for some of these community banks is they say, yeah, we're going to get into banking as a service. And like, just by getting into banking as a service magically, we'll have, you know, all of these opportunities fall into our laps. I don't necessarily think that's true. What do you think the the sort of best practices are in terms of like, if you're going to get into Bass, what are the, the competitive advantages you want to think about or try to cultivate? The first question, and, and it's, it's frustrating because uh, I w- obviously will not mention the name of this client, but they're going through that process of evaluating the bass opportunities. And, you know, they start by looking at the macro trends and all the forecasts and all of that kind of stuff. Then they ask me to kind of get in and they run all this stuff by me. They go, well, what do you think? I go, huh? what do you bring to the table? What are you bringing to the table? needs to be the the first thing. So it's not about the fear of missing out on some opportunity. It's about saying, hey, we've got something here that we need to get out to a broader set of people than Bass or Embedded Finance, the bigger umbrella, being the, the distribution channel by which to do that. All the other stuff, Alex, is sort of table stakes. You know, uh, there's a VC firm that likes to go around saying that, you know, compliance as a you know is the competitive advantage you know no that's just the table stakes the connectivity piece is the table stakes the differentiator is the product what is the product you're bringing to the table and how are you evolving that product or set of products over time uh level which is now part of indava indava sorry if i'm not pronouncing that right guys but uh, you know, they did a study last year, and I think it was a great study, and, you know, found that one of the big issues that a lot of the fintechs have is poor product and poor speed to product development and design. And this is a huge challenge in the banking industry, especially for smaller and mid-sized institutions who have never had product development and design people. They just take what their vendor gives them. So huge opportunity here for this, but look, the compliance and connectivity stuff, which is the stuff that the early guys brought to the table, uh, is now morphing to, look, that's table stakes and you know, understanding your client's customer base, understanding the product needs, evolving that product over time is clearly becoming the, the competitive factor in the mass space, not compliance. I totally agree. I mean, if you 
if you build really great compliance infrastructure, you're just going to be sort of a standard banking as a service bank that, you know, is not too much of a pain to deal with. And that that by itself is not a not a differentiator. And, and I think that's particularly true when we start to think about the sort of expanding scope of who might be supplying banking as a service services, which one of the the areas you've written about, and I, I think I've written about it as well, and I totally agree with you, is there's no real restriction on banks being larger than $10 billion in assets getting into banking as a service. I mean, it's evolved the way that it has with a lot of smaller banks because the Durban Amendment and the uh, you know exception to the interchange cap on debit interchange revenue and the fact that a lot of neobanks that sort of started this banking as a service wave were monetizing primarily through debit interchange. But I mean, A, I think the interest in debit interchange only business models is kind of starting to fade, which is good. Uh, VCs, I think, are not really buying into the idea that, oh, yeah, we're going to monetize through debit interchange. It's going to be spectacular. So if we've sort of moved off of that as like the only lever for revenue generation, and as you're saying, like there's a desire to have better product, the ability to move faster, the ability to be more flexible and enable like a greater set of use cases, all of those would seem to be advantages that bigger banks, banks over $10 billion in assets, would be able to bring to the table. Do you see that as something that's going to happen in the relatively short term? I think it's already happening. Um, I saw recently, I think it was on LinkedIn, connected with somebody whose title was, you know, director of embedded or banking as a service at JP Morgan Chase. It's right. I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's already happening. You know, when I had written a report last year on the bass opportunity from a banking perspective, uh, I said, you know, look, it's it's the interchange thing is simply a margin decision. Right. And if you're a JP Morgan Chase and you think that there's a much bigger opportunity from a lending perspective, and by the way, from a business services perspective, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote an article, and then I don't remember the title, but it was basically who owns the customer in a basket? Who is the customer? For a long time, I was telling bankers, Oh, yeah. Look, Bass is nothing more than a distribution channel thing. It's about getting your products out to a broader set of people. Right. And that's true. But it misses the point that those aren't your customers. They're somebody else's customers. Your customer is the client, the fintech or the brand that's providing that. If you're helping them grow their business by providing the financial services you provide to the and customer, which could be a small business, but often a consumer, don't you think that positions you better to be the bank to that client? Yeah. And so a JP Morgan Chase, a Wells Fargo, a Bank of America is going to look at this and say, yeah, you know, the end result of the going to the consumer with more financial services may not be the big nut that, that we really would want to go after, but by getting more business customers into the mix who want to provide financial services. So this kind of opens the door, not just to the big banks, Alex, but who's, so who's the next big bass provider? Klarna. Sure. Klarna is already ha- helping hundreds, thousands. I don't know how many merchants sell better by providing a buy now, pay later service, mm-hmm. but with a banking capability, boy, they can help those, those clients, those retailers, those merchants provide a broader set of financial services. 
Klarna already has a, I didn't realize this until recently, they have like an open banking division where they sell like open banking capabilities to merchants or other fintech companies or whatever. So like in terms of them using their infrastructure in different ways to serve that customer base, they're already doing that. Right. And they are, they have the door because they have such a good relationship with their merchants and retailers because they help them sell more. This is where I think a lot of the mid-sized, smaller banks, number A, don't get it, and B, don't have the capabilities, is that it isn't simply about, I mean, yes, having the, the product is super important, but being able to better sell the product, your product, which helps your customer, the fintech, the merchant, the retailer, sell their product, this is kind of the nature of embedded, Alex, that you're not simply selling a checking account or a debit card. You're helping sell the product it's tied to or the service it's tied to. So we're kind of early in this. And especially since, you know, we're wrestling with connectivity and compliance issues. <laughs> that's, look, five years from now, that shit's got to be done and then move on to the business challenge, not the infrastructure challenge. Well, it's really interesting you say that, right? Because I, I think a thing that we're maybe not thinking of banking as a service in this context, but like a way to think about banking as a service is in the future, perhaps, banking as a service is just one of those capabilities that you need to offer if you are in the business of providing any types of services to other companies. A specific example that I'll use that's somewhat timely is I've heard through the grapevine that there were some discussions happening before all of the drama recently at Silicon Valley Bank and them potentially getting into banking as a service, right? And, you know, setting aside all the stuff that happened with Silicon Valley Bank and what that means, it is a really interesting concept, kind of to your point of, okay, we already work with a lot of fintech companies, right? Because we're their bank. We work with their venture capital firms that are funding them. We're giving them debt financing. We're doing all of these things working with fintech companies. We have a banking charter. Why not just also do banking as a service, right? And I think in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they weren't really a tech bank. And so probably standing up the tech platform and kind of getting that part of it going would have been a bit of a, a large lift. They were more of a relationship bank sort of living within a tech ecosystem. But it's exactly the kind of example that you mentioned of you know, if you're Silicon Valley Bank, or if now if you're someone who's picking up a lot of those tech companies that Silicon Valley Bank had before, whether that's JP Morgan Chase or, you know, name your your other bank that's trying to scoop up some of those um, tech startups, maybe banking as a service is just a very natural add-on to the services that those companies are already used to getting from you. And even when you look at someone like Goldman Sachs, as an example, right? Um, they have this whole sort of transactional banking business that uh, is basically designed to help sort of enable other companies. I've heard, again, through the grapevine that like one of the things they didn't anticipate, but they've actually really liked from the acquisition of GreenSky, which is their point of sale lending company, is a lot of those businesses that are getting loans or offering loans through GreenSky they actually need other services from Goldman Sachs. They need like business banking and wealth management and investment management services, treasury management. So there are a lot more connection points, it seems like, between offering banking as a service, which, as we've seen, can be a nice standalone business, or offering it as a complementary service to your business clients that need all kinds of different stuff. Yeah, I'm glad you went down that path. And by the way, 
I clearly am hanging out in all the wrong places because your grapevine sounds really kind of cool. You're hearing <laughs> lots of things on your grapevine. I don't hear diddly squat in my grapevine, so I got I to gotta get a new grapevine. But I like where you're going with this because it's really pointing out the difference from a, of taking a bottom-up approach versus a top-down approach. And the bottom-up approach is like, hey, banking as a service is something we should get into. Let's go do it. The yeah. top-down approach says, who are our clients? Who do we want our clients or customers to be? What do they need? And the answer is, well, they need a lot more than just banking services. They need help in selling and delivering their products and services. And look, you, you this is just the simplest stuff in the world. You help somebody grow their business, they're going to want more from you and Absolutely. have a loyalty relationship. So thinking about it differently, not thinking about it in terms of should we provide this service and thinking about it from the perspective of who are our business customers, retail customers, where is this overlap? This is this is where it gets complicated because if you're good at serving the retail set of customers who are the customers of your commercial set of customers, then you're almost crazy not to get into bass because of the the overlap and connection there. I mean, imagine going you're a bank and you're going to your business customer, your commercial customer and going, you, you guys are missing the boat. Let me tell you about your customer base. This is what they're doing, and this is what they want, and this is what they need, and this is what they're buying, and here's what you could be doing to sell more, drive more, um, more of your, own, your core products, ancillary revenue from financial products, and drive a deeper relationship with those customers. The problem, Alex, is that how many banks do you know that can do that? Right. And my answer is like, I don't know, but I think it's less than 10 that really have the understanding of the customer base and the understanding of the commercial base to be able to have that. But man, if you are one of those six or seven banks that can do that, you're crazy not to, to be pumping the gas on bass. Pumping the gas on bass. I like that. That's good. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I think, yeah, to put a fine point on it, I totally agree with you, right? It's like the way that a lot of community banks are probably thinking about banking as a service is, hey, we're a really cool commercial bank. We do commercial lending and banking within this particular geographic region. We specialize in working with companies that are in industry X. Like if we're in Kansas, we probably specialize with agriculture and farming and that kind of stuff. And you know, that business is kind of tough and, you know, the industry is consolidating. So why don't we do banking as a service, which is this totally other thing, and we can go get fintech companies, whatever we mean when we put fintech companies in quotes. We don't know any fintech companies, but we'll go get some fintech companies. And that'll be a nice complementary business to what we're doing over here, even though they have nothing to do with each other and it's a completely different skill set and set of relationships. What I think you're arguing for and that I, I completely agree with is, no, no, no. Banking as a service is a deeply complementary business to the existing business that you have serving these companies within the region that you're already working with. So if you work with large agricultural companies or ranchers or farms or whatever, like find an opportunity within that set of customers for them to offer financial services to their customers or to embed financial services in some aspect of what they're doing. And you, the bank that already banks them as a business bank, can also provide those services to them. So it is a very complementary extension of the area that you already know, the business that you already know, 
yes, there's probably some sort of software and technology things that you're going to need to get better at or import those abilities, but it is a deeply complementary offering or can be to your existing business, not some lark off in fintech land that is scary to you because you've never met a fintech company before. Is that a maybe a fair way of thinking about the opportunity? Spot on. And when you look at it in that context, it's almost you got to shake your head. Why wasn't SVB already into this? It's crazy. Even if right? they didn't have the technology capabilities, isn't it a fair bet that they were banking Sinkterra, Item, Treasury Prime, or at least one of those companies that totally was already pro- that could have come to the table to provide the services? So totally, yeah. You have a charter right there. You have fintech companies going like, man, we need a we need a banking service partner, and I'm sure SVB was like, yeah, you should go find one of those. Yeah, like it's yeah, it's go crazy. It's a fiddly little bank in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> Washington, right. state of Washington. No offense to Coastal there, because that's what I was alluding to. But you know. Oh, I mean, I think that's a really, really good place to sort of end the supply part of the discussion because it's like there was just a huge opportunity sitting there. And all it really was, going back to the bigger banks getting into this, was a margin decision, right? You're over $10 billion. So what? Who cares? Like, you're over $10 billion in assets. SVB took a haircut on all kinds of services that they offered to their clients in order to provide a really tightly integrated ecosystem of services. So it's kind of crazy in retrospect that they didn't do that. I want to jump now to, and it's actually a good segue because we're talking about SVB and the slowdown in venture capital funding. I want to talk about the demand side. So when the bank corps of the world were getting into banking as a service and getting dinged by regulators for just sort of like throwing the doors open to banking as a service and just doing it for everybody, that was like the golden age in terms of fintech demand surging for banking as a service, right? Every everyone had an idea for a neobank. And I know you and I have uh, written about this both and in, in some of the things we've covered, but like a neobank for X, a neobank for Y, a neobank for Z. Like there's a neobank for everything. All of them are debit interchange-based models. And there was just seemingly an unlimited appetite on the part of VCs to fund all of those companies. And, you know, to a degree, if you think that the, the spigot is never going to get turned off in terms of VC dollars flowing into the space, you could be a banking as a service provider and look at that and go, yeah, these all of these companies have tons of money to spend getting up to speed with us and they'll be able to scale up and grow their customer bases. What we have found is that, um, A, that's not true. There have been some winners that have done a really good job of growing within the neobanking space. This is the cash apps and chimes and PayPal's, uh, maybe current, a couple others. And then there have been a lot of sort of also rands that haven't been able to have that same level of success. And, you know, now that we're not in the sort of COVID era, uh, 0% interest rate, we need to find a place to jam all of this money. So let's just invest in every neobank we can find. Now that we're not in that era, my sense, and I'd love to get your take on this, is that a lot of the enthusiasm for customer facing fintech companies, whether that's B2C, someone like a Chime, or B2B being more like a Ramp or a Brex or a Mercury, someone like that, that a lot of the enthusiasm from VCs has sort of flowed back out of that. And that the subsequent demand for banking as a service, while it's still there, it's not this just sort of like California gold rush of just, oh my gosh, we can just sell picks and shovels to every one of these companies and just make a killing. That would seem to sort of temper the opportunity within banking as a service a little bit. But I don't know. What do you think about the the demand side of the equation? 
as everything else we talked about, it's kind of complex. It's no easy answer on this. But here's the thing I'll, I'll say is that back in November, I was out at a conference, met the CEO of one of the early bass players who's have, have grown their business nicely and said, aren't you worried that a lot of these fintechs just aren't going to make it? He said, at this point, no, because he said, we're in a situation where because we are established and we're good at what we do, we can pick and choose. We now have the luxury of turning away the ones we don't think are, are going to make it and, and do well. So I mean, that has one side to it that, yes, you know, and it's, God, man, it's tough when I see Aspiration, who I've loved, say that they're laying off half the staff. Kills me when I see the story in New York Magazine about daylight. I mean, this stuff, you know, um, and these are like, I highlight them in my presentation. Oh, me too. I now have to change. I have to change my deck, dude. Right, <laughs> right. I hear you. All right, but we're looking at this opportunity too narrowly when we just think fintech. And like you said before, it isn't just neo banks. It's there's just a ton of companies that are emerging, provide any number of different related services who not only need the bank from a license perspective, they need the bank or a license, a charter and a, and a compliance perspective. They need the bank for the product delivery and the support of that product. And then look, I've said this for the past couple of months, I'm going to stick to my story. I think the bass opportunity is much bigger on the commercial side than on the retail side. And the opportunity to embed banking services into uh, vertical market SaaS applications, I think is like unlimited. And then not enough people are talking about the brand opportunity, you know, enabling not just the Nike or Walmart, whatever, but jewelry stores, jewelry, you know, totally. any number of vertical markets have opportunities that are related to some sort of financial services. And so I think that's kind of the opportunity more so than just this generic fintech and especially neo bank opportunity. But I know you want to talk about the demand side, so let me let's take it to the next level, which is how big is it really? It's you know, I've seen the projections. You know me, Alex. I'm willing to argue and fight with just about everybody, <laughs> but one of those people that I won't argue with is Matt Harris, yeah, from Bain Capital, because he knows his shit. He does. And when he and Bain, I think maybe the consulting side actually come out and estimate the the embedded finance opportunity at seven trillion dollars, you know, this is not a back of the envelope calculation. This is good work. But I have some big problems with that projection, Alex. So when I projected the the bass opportunity from a bank perspective, it was based on the belief or assumption or projection that by 2025, 2026, so there'd be 300 banks providing bass services. And back in December, I posted on LinkedIn and said, uh, so what do y'all think? I said it's going to be 300. Do you, you think I'm right? 99% of the comments said, you're wrong, which is normal for me. Sure. Uh, but what they specifically said I was wrong with, they thought I was wrong by an order of magnitude of three, and not 3x too low, but 3x too high. Oh, wow. Alex, I don't see how you support $7 trillion of embedded finance with 100 mid-sized, piddly shit little banks. 
and credit unions. Yeah, yeah. Even if you threw in some of the big banks. Yeah. I also think that if you look demographically, look, I I, I know you Gen Xers and millennials and baby, well, not the Gen Xers, but the millennials and I don't even know how old you are. I don't even know. Millennial, millennial, millennial. But I'm a really old millennial, so like I, I'm more spiritually aligned with you, but a millennial tech. Excellent. Millennials and, and, and Gen Zers, I get it. You know, they're big, they're driving everything, but I got news for you. There's still a lot of baby boomers out there. Well, and you guys have all the money. Like, I mean, that's that's the And problem. that's the point. We got yeah. the money, man. Yeah. So we're not changing our behaviors as rapidly and as are as open to these new providers that younger consumers are. So I actually, I'm willing to accept the $7 trillion estimate, but not the time frame. It always takes longer to get there. I mean, God sakes, Alex, look how long it's, well, online banking has been around and we're still only, what, at about 80% penetration or something. And totally, you know, yes, the mobile side is huge penetration from a, a Gen Zer and millennial perspective, but those numbers drop significantly because it's a little bit less with Gen Xers and much less with babies. So we got to always take into account the behavioral change that's required and the re- reality that, at least in the US, there's still a lot of baby boomers out there with strong buying power. So, you know, the demand side, but once again, that's a very consumer-oriented view of this. That's why I go back to the B2B opportunity and the opportunity to integrate this stuff through the vertical SaaS applications with not necessarily end customer, i.e. consumer services, banking services, but banking services to the beauty parlor that needs a cash advance. Right. Um, to the physician who needs to finance a new piece of equipment, you know, that kind of stuff. That's why I think the B2B opportunity here is huge and we're over-idealizing or idolizing the the B2C opportunity. It's interesting, right? Because when we say banking as a service, it sort of just naturally puts us in the mode of like, well, banking is a bank account and bank accounts are things that consumers have. And so you sort of just like the neo-banking thing comes to mind first. It's the most sort of obvious instantiation of banking as a service because it just seems very natural. But to your point, I mean, I one of the, the mild critiques I've had of a lot of the projections around uh, embedded finance and the sort of size of that opportunity is, I actually don't think that embedded like banking accounts are going to end up being something that takes off a tremendous amount, probably more on the commercial side than on the consumer side. But like the whole rationale of embedded finance is most financial services products can and probably should be invisible because they're really just enabling other things. Right. This is always the thing with loans is, you know, I have no desire to go any you know way out of my way at all to get a loan to buy something that I want. I just want that thing. And if you can give me the thing in the context of me trying to buy it and I get the loan very seamlessly, honestly, as a consumer and probably as a business, I just, I want that experience. I want that convenience. And even if I pay a higher price or I don't shop around or whatever, like just make the loan invisible, just give it to me, boom, done. Bank accounts to me seem very different, which is that like, yeah, it's nice if I can have the convenience of it being embedded where I am and that's awesome. But like at the end of the day, I don't really want my bank account to be invisible. Like I need to kind of like interact with my bank account. Like it's a product in and of itself that I want to have some interaction with. I want to have some level of sort of trust baked into that experience. I think we've seen again, 
in the fallout of SVB, this sort of resurgent idea of like, I need to sort of trust where I keep my money and sort of keep track of that and understand how that all works. And so when I look at like embedded finance and the demand side of this, I don't see, to your point, as big an opportunity in B2C as I see in B2B. And I don't see as big an opportunity in banking or deposit products as I do in lending, payments, insurance. Like there's a whole bunch of other product areas where it would seem like that would be a much more natural thing. And to your point, you know, if you look at like the B2B area and what some of these like embedded finance opportunities are, like just to give you one example that I've been spending some time researching, the construction industry is just fascinating, right? Because as you might imagine, not a lot of software there traditionally, a lot of like paper-based processes, a lot of CFO, but also wears a hard hat and goes to the construction yard. Like it's not, it's not an overly well-banked area, but there's all kinds of sort of weird payments and uh, lending opportunities that are are sort of unrealized within the construction space. Like, for example, most large construction projects, I was sort of surprised to learn, end up, functionally speaking, getting financed by subcontractors, right? Because if you think about the way that the like chain of responsibility works, the general contractor organizes the project and gets all of the subcontractors to come in. All the subcontractors bid for the work, they come in, they order the materials, they do the work, and then they submit an invoice that goes up through the general contractor and then up to the client at the end. And that whole process of submitting those invoices and getting paid functionally means that subcontractors are floating all of the money for the entire project, building a skyscraper in downtown Seattle. It's basically being financed by subcontractors that are all taking individual credit risk while waiting to get paid for the work that they've already done or the materials they've already ordered. And so like a very natural opportunity for embedded finance and for banking as a service would be, hey, let's go do lending to those subcontractors. Let's go accelerate the repayment process for those subcontractors. And the thing that strikes me is interesting about that is that's kind of like a net new financial services opportunity, right? There's no banking that's being done there right now, but through software and the ability to sort of plug into that context, you could add new value. So when I, I read the the estimates from Bain around $7 trillion for the embedded finance opportunity, to me, those are the things I think more about is what is a deeply niche B2B application for where we could plug lending, insurance, payments, whatever in, and drive new net new value that has not existed before because we're capturing it in a context that banks have never been able to get to or even really see before. Yeah, I agree 100%. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Bain, I don't know if it's a report or just an article, there's a graphic that's actually not the best design graphic in the world. It's just that this big square block and they try to like carve out pieces. And when I looked at it, I said, only that little piece for the B2B side? Uh, I don't know. This big piece for the payment stuff? Well, part of it's definitional too, because some of it's like, if you're avoiding the traditional rails, then somehow that got included in embedded. But it shouldn't be because embedded meant the embedded of the banking. Anyway, we're good. But um, yes, I, I totally agree with you there that um, there is this net new opportunity for, for this. So yeah, great example. Last thing I wanted to ask you about is a couple of the wild cards that are sort of floating around the the Bass space. Um, two in particular that I have in mind. One you already referenced a little bit, which is all of these uh, banking as a service middleware platforms. So this is the 
Sinkteras and um, treasury primes and units and bonds of the world. The general principle there, I think, has been that it, there's supply on one side, there's demand on the other side, as we talked about. There's a need for sort of matchmaking and market making in between the supply side and the demand side. And that's kind of where these middleware platforms sit. A lot of the work that they have done, I think historically, kind of going back to your earlier point, has been making the integration stuff easier, making the compliance stuff easier, like so, sort of solving some of those table stakes problems. I also think, uh, and and you and I know a lot of the folks at these companies and they're doing really good work, but I also think we probably overinvested in this particular category of fintech over the last couple of years. I don't know how many of these platforms we're ultimately going to end up needing. And I also imagine that as the table stake stuff kind of takes care of itself, there'll be new problems or new sort of areas that they expand into. But what's kind of your quick read on the banking as a service platform space? I'm still semi-bullish on it. And I think you can characterize it correctly that they're the initial focus was much more on sort of connectivity and compliance, but where the evolution of that goes is the matchmaking, but it's specialization. Yeah. And, you know, here's a good example. I'll come back to the um, vertical market SaaS applications uh, and why I love what uh, Synovus is doing with MAST is, you know, they're not going after everything. They're saying we're going to be really good at sort of integrating and, and helping that and helping bank partners find the right matches in the software, the vertical market, the vertical SaaS market. This is actually a very, I think, traditional evolution of a lot of different innovations and, and industries, Alex. It's you come in and you have a new product or service and you offer it to everybody. But then others find niches and start to specialize. And then ultimately, the some players say, well, I got to get big by re-aggregating. So the whole aggregation, disaggregation wave goes back and forth. So now we have the generic blast providers. Hey, we provide connectivity. Oh, we do matchmaking. But over time, somebody's going to come in and go, we do better matchmaking because we know that business. Yeah. If you're in agriculture, commercial lending, then we're the banking as a service platform for you because we're going to go find every one of the companies that's in that area that you should be working with. That's why I'm bullish on the big banks too, because they, and, and why SVP should have been like, yeah, uh, we can do the matchmaking. We, totally. they're all our clients. We know them already, you know, and we know the business. So yeah, I I'm I'm not dismissive of the platform. The, obviously, there is a an economic problem because of you know, the, but there's always an economic problem. What right. did did the fact that there's an economic problem of having Visa and Mastercard take a chunk of the payment stop that from growing to be a gazillion dollar market? No, of course not. Same thing here, but it's about the value added that you provide. And this is why buy now, pay later providers should not be dismissed and why I keep arguing Klarna is not a buy now, pay later provider. It's an e-commerce enablement company. And if you are a business, not even e-business, but just a business enablement provider helping your clients grow their business, yeah, no problem. Give you a cut on that. Yeah, because absolutely. It's a net, net a profit, it's a profitable situation. This was the problem with checking accounts. And why, when it went from free checking to not free checking, people left because it was like, where's the value in, in any of this? There was no value from that. And so if the value is simply 
compliance and connectivity, it's dead end. That's a dead end. They have to become really good at the matchmaking and business enablement, the selling of the products and services, not just the connectivity and compliance aspect. Yeah, the business enablement point is a really good one, right? I mean, that's the that's the thing I always come back to with really any of these things. Like when someone's like, oh, yeah, we're going to disrupt uh, Visa and MasterCard by building our own sort of alternative payment network. And, you know, you go, OK, great. That's fantastic. What's the value proposition to merchants? They're like, oh, we're going to cut their payment acceptance costs. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, I know Walmart cares about that and Amazon cares about that. But like the vast majority of merchants out there, to your point, they want to sell more. That's what they want to do. They want to sell more stuff. They want business enablement. And, you know, that's just not as motivating factor. Whereas, again, to your point, Klarna, buy now, pay later, it wasn't less expensive. It was more expensive than accepting credit cards, but it enabled more business. It enabled more commerce. So I think that same lens of enabling more business and creating more revenue, not finding like more clever ways to chop up the existing revenue pool, that's that's the right way to think about it. Agreed. You just say it so much better than I do. Well, I'd let you go first, and then I get to come in and summarize and be smart. That's how it worked when we worked together as well. Um, okay, so last thing I want to ask you about is compliance. And I think regulators are going to have a say in all of this over the next, particularly like next 18 months. We saw some signs in 2022 that uh, banking as a service was really finally kind of making it onto the radar of some of the regulatory agencies. We saw a couple sort of uh, actions taken in order to uh, sort of maybe halt or slow down some of what the the different partner banks were doing. Obviously, we don't have a crystal ball into the inside of like what regulators are planning to do around banking as a service, but just sort of theoretically, what do you see the impact of regulation being on banking as a service? Because to a degree, it's been a little bit the Wild West the last 10 years, and I, I don't anticipate the next 10 years being quite so open from that perspective. Yeah, no, it's not Wild West, but look, there's there's always waves Everything goes up and down. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it is we're talking about. And so, you know, things were kind of open because nobody understood it. And thank you, Blue Ridge, for screwing that up for everybody else. <laughs> I'm going to get shit for that one. But it then it tightened up. And then with this, you know, SVP thing, everything is going to get tightened up again. But here's the thing. And let's go back to the way politics work, which is, you know, you have constituencies. And... Mid-sized to small banks have a lot of say at the local political level. More than people would think. Like if you're in fintech, you might not realize that like the community banking, they they can swing a big hammer. Oh, yeah. And if you're in the House, if you're in the Senate, you don't want to be pissing off your local community banks. And then you've also, though, Alex, you got a lot of mid-sized businesses. And I'm not just talking about retail. I'm talking about every mid-sized business who's going to go, you know, by strangling the banks, you're actually strangling me. Whether it's for Bass or every everything, you know, in the banking, it's like you got to make the connection that you're strangling them. You're strang that means you're strangling me. And so I think we'll see these waves go back and forth of loosening and tightening and loosening and tightening. It's just an evolutionary process, you know, ups and downs. It's never going to be what the last 10 years of fintech was, which is a boom, straight line up and boom, crash, you know? No, this is going to ebb and flow in a much, you know, more predictable way, but very bullish that that's longer term, five at least, if not 10 years out, 
we understand this better. We understand how it works. No, I, I don't see that being the, the gating factor for the growth of Bess. The understanding is the key point. I mean, I, I don't necessarily, I don't really get the sense, honestly, that regulators have a huge problem with banking as a service. I've seen some people talk about it as like, oh, it's regulatory arbitrage. Everyone who offers banking as a service should like get a bank charter. Like, I, I don't, I don't think any of that's true. I think regulators are are comfortable with the concept. I think more what it is, to your point, is they just don't feel like they have their arms fully wrapped around like what's happening. And I think like if you're the OCC as an example, you want to have a really good answer to the question like exactly how many banks that we oversee are doing banking as a service. And among all of the banks that are doing banking as a service, what type of banking as a service are they doing? Are they working with fintech companies that are competing with banks? Are they more enabling like embedded finance? Like what what areas are they doing banking as a service in? And like how can we categorize it and just understand it? And it seems like that's the, the negative we're going to see. Sounds good. Awesome. Okay. Well, that is, I think, a great place to leave it. Um, Ron, thank you for joining me. This was a fun for a first podcast. I think this went okay. I was great, man. I learned a lot from you. That's awesome. Likewise, I really appreciate you taking the time and um, we'll do this again soon. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, why not pass it on to a friend you think would enjoy it too? And be sure to rate us five stars wherever you listen. This episode was brought to you by Nova Payment, a mission-critical financial and payments infrastructure provider. So you don't miss any more fintech stories. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts.